1: where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today I'm welcoming Claire B. Willis. Claire's a clinical social worker and has been working in the field of oncology and bereavement for more than 20 years. She's a former staff member of the wellness community and co-founder of the Boston nonprofit Facing Cancer Together. For more than two decades, she's led bereavement, end of life, support, and therapeutic writing groups. She's also co-taught spiritual resources for healing the mind, body, and soul at Andover Newton Theological School. She maintains a private practice in Brookline, Massachusetts. Claire's worked in hospice care for many years, both as a volunteer and a social worker. As a lay Buddhist chaplain ordained by Joan Halifax at Upaya Zen Center in Santa Fe, she focuses on contemplative practices for end-of-life care. For the past five years, she's been a student of Koshin Paley Ellison, a founding teacher at the New York Zen Center for Contemplative Care. Claire's the author of Lasting Words, a guide to finding meaning toward the close of life. And I interviewed her about that book a few years back. Uh, and also the new the new book just being released, Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Lost to Peace. Welcome back, Claire. Thank you. It's so nice to be here. It, very nice to have you. And um, I appreciate about this new book, uh, something I remembered from the first book as well. Um, so clear and so... Uh, accessible and so warm, uh, and that matters so much when we're talking about grief, so thank you for that. You know, I, I appreciate your saying that,
2: because one of the things we wanted to have the book feel like it was a companion to the reader, so that in their grief, they didn't feel quite so alone.
1: Yes, and as you can imagine, I've, I've um, read a lot of books about uh, Kind of bringing practices into the grief process that can help, um, but I've found uh, your book particularly um, easy to uh, to imagine people doing a little bit and feeling good about it. Uh, some sometimes the goals are so so high, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> but you gave people some soft ways to put a toe in, I guess. Along that, with you know the the um, more complete practices that that help in these times, I'm glad you I'm glad you recognize that because we wanted
2: to keep it really simple and um, accessible for people at a time that can be so tumultuous.
1: I was mentioning to you before we went on air how struck I was that you you know the book is just coming out. We're in. Uh, 2020, um, October 2020, in the middle of pandemic, however you perceive that, I think we perceive it somewhat similarly, and that you had to change your introduction. And so um, I've been thinking about that, the pandemic itself and everything ensuing from that as an incredible loss, uh, kind of a global, global grief event. And so it really stood out that you too recognized that that was the context that the book was arriving in. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned this. The book was supposed to come out um,
2: in about six months from now, seven months. And then last spring, all of a sudden, the publisher said, we want this book out immediately. We're going to fast track it. And there was nothing in the book about the pandemic, because we had written it over the course of the last four years. And the question became how to bring the pandemic in without dating the book, and yet make it uh, applicable to these times. And we had a lot of discussions about that. And so what we decided to do was to put an author's note at the very beginning that included the pandemic. The the pandemic. A lot of the grief around the pandemic is a similar process. It's just a larger grief. Um, most of our the book was pitched towards the more ordinary losses of family, friends, partners, pets, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, there was just loss everywhere in the culture, and people dying alone, and environmental catastrophe which you certainly know about in california
1: absolutely so
2: it it became something we had to address without having the book be dated in time (laughs) you know so that's why we put an author's note at the beginning to
1: address that and you know you don't mention um really too much about particular losses throughout the course of the book it's more a how to how to navigate loss itself, how to dive into loss itself, how to dive into our grief. Um, So it would have been a huge edit to (laughs) bring that into the rest of the book, but I did appreciate it being um, acknowledged Yeah,
0: uh, Yeah, because
1: it's so much a part. And of course, because I'm mostly in the grief field, although I do work with end of life issues and and uh, you know, that process of dying. Um, When I hear about one death, I'm automatically thinking geometrically about all the people impacted by that death. Mm -hmm. And um, so today we're at, where are we? 230,000 people have died. Yes. Um, And so the scope of loss um, specific loss to COVID, not not to mention all the other the other losses going on, is pretty astronomical. Um, really yes. overwhelming in some ways. It, it's almost
2: unimaginable unless you have a face on it and you know somebody. It's it's so massive. It's just hard to grasp it. One of the things that I've noticed in my practice, which I would imagine Cheryl you've noticed as well, is that the, the, the losses, the, the huge losses on the from generated from COVID have also opened people up to prior losses that weren't grieved. So people are finding that they're remembering the loss of their mother who might have died five years ago, that anything we haven't integrated in terms of grief is emerging in the face of the multiple layers of loss that each one of us experienced daily. Um, the loss of life as we knew it, for starters. Um, Absolutely. That's the most universal one. And then, of course, there's, there's the economic stability, instability that's been generated, the closing of schools. We, we have to learn to live with a level of uncertainty that we never anticipated encountering, I think.
1: Yes, I I agree. I mean that that has been so clear to me with my clients, and then uh, I've noticed with myself too. Um, there's a sort of poignancy in what I didn't have to experience that I know people are experiencing now. For instance, uh, when my wife died, we were surrounded by people. People were in and out of our house constantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, people spent the night. People took care of our children. They gave us you know it was such a social um experience. Communal. communal communal experience much better word communal experience which is virtually impossible i have a client who is talking about her best friend who's currently dying not of covid and no one can go in the house
2: yes i have a client who recently lost her husband and was afraid to have hospice come in and help her and then of course the issue became how to how to have the support of her community afterwards without Mm -hmm. taking risks or breaking the law around gathering.
1: And really astronomical.
2: We've had to get very creative. And I think, you know, how rituals have often marked our grieving funerals, memorial services, celebrations of life. But I think now what we may begin to see is that those, those events go on for a longer time that it's not one time after the death, because I know people that are planning gatherings, hopefully for a year from now or a year and a half from now to honor loved ones.
1: Which, which I guess we would both agree is not a bad thing in general to continue to, to acknowledge. Yes. You you talk about uh, one of the things in, in the book, um well, first of all, you include a poem that's one of my favorite poems in the universe um, by uh, Naomi Shihab Nye, who I actually mm. interviewed on this show, um, mm. Beautiful, Beautiful Writer. Uh, and I, I wonder if you could share the, that,, um, that section of the book that's really about the power of kindness in in grief because, I've noticed the people that can get soft right now are actually doing better than the people that are kind of tightening up um, no matter what it's in relationship to the politics or the you know the loss whatever it is when we can kind of open and be kind it makes such a huge difference Could you share some of that oh yeah
2: that's it's so interesting that you say that. Um, I, one of the reasons we started with kindness is that I think the culture has a lot of expectations about what grief should look like. There are various models that float around that have stages in them or uh, different uh, timelines or expectations. And what happens is that often I find in my practice that people compare themselves to that, those timelines or those theories and they they have themselves fall short. A recipe so, for failure. <laughs> a recipe, yeah. Yeah. It's not one you want to cook. <laughs> no. So we started with this whole question of kindness, which seems to be the most reliable anchor um, amidst pain and chaos. It's really kindness. that's the reliable anchor, I think. And one of the things that I always say a lot is that Grief has as many expressions and as many durations as there are people who grieve. And no one can tell us what our grief should look like. Mm -hmm. And I think part of what drove me to write this book is that I got so tired of saying over and over to people, your grief is normal. What you're doing and feeling and experiencing is normal because somehow these models have seeped into people's consciousness about what their grief should look like. Mm-hmm. So an antidote to that is the practice of kindness, of treating yourself as you would a close friend um, or you would a child who was hurting. So I think it's such an important starting point, especially uh, to counter the hardening of the heart. I and mean, one of the messages of the book is that grief is an expression of love. So why would we not want to grieve? Why would we not want to express our love for someone who died by grieving?
1: Amen to that. So would you read that, that part of the book? Would I read it? Uh, uh, I, I, or I can, if I you'd I think rather. you'd better. Be in front of me. <laughs> well, the, here's, here's a piece of the poem. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, You must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to gaze at bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. And then you say, in the weeks, months, and years after profound loss, it's especially important to offer yourself great kindness. It's the best gift you can give yourself. As it turns out, it's the best gift you can give those you love and those who love you. What does it mean to be kind to yourself, to take your own own side, to befriend yourself? starts wherever you are, not in some idealized place, but exactly where you are standing." What that made me think about, honestly, Claire, was not the time after my wife died. It was the time while she was ill, where I was being, as her caregiver, so hard on myself. Various things were going on that were um, quite tragic. in in ways other than death losses other than death and that uh my my uh distorted um self-critical voice got extremely mm. loud <laughs> and yeah. uh, it, you know then it broke at some point uh long ways in took a while <laughs> it broke and so i did learn to be kind to myself what a difference in my entire life oh. that made You know, I think the other thing worth mentioning here,
2: and and I really appreciate what you're saying about how it's when you're not kind to yourself, there's a way you're living against yourself. And one of the things that I always say to people is that if you're not kind to yourself with your grief, it's going to be very hard for you to be kind to other people who are grieving. Because if we can't accept those parts of ourselves, That feel this way? How do we sit and be present to people who are expressing those parts that we don't want to see in ourselves?
1: And the thing is, we can avoid that for a period of time, but unless we avoid human interaction, we can't avoid it forever. Um, I've been lately comparing my experience of being in my 40s and having um you know the the illness and death of of my my love uh and how that was for people versus now i'm now uh 67 and most people in my life have had some kind of big loss yeah Yeah. and so we've all gotten better at sitting with each other That 10 years she was ill were a big training program (laughs) for a whole bunch of people. But we didn't start very good at it. You know, we we weren't very good at it at the start. It takes practice. You didn't have peers. You know, now. Exactly. We all
2: have peers who are dying or who've died. But when you're in your 40s, who has a peer that's dying? That's kind of an unusual situation. Less so right now.
1: Yeah, less so now. But also... I think that uh, at that age, people are thinking they're the only ones, and they're not really talking about it, too, because I can think of many people who had had losses. That didn't mean anyone knew how to talk about it. Well, Um, that's a
2: really interesting point you're raising, because I think the one good thing, maybe two good things, that COVID has brought is it's brought grief into our everyday language. And so we see articles in the New York Times on grief, we see them in the Atlantic, we see them in a lot of the mainstream magazines and that never was before. So it's, it's becoming part of our daily language in a way that it really needs to because I think everybody in this world is grieving on some level, even though their grief may not look like sorrow or sadness, <clears throat> but, Grief has so many expressions that um, I don't know how anybody can be living today and not feel some grief. They may not know it, but that it's just saturated into our bodies, I think.
1: One of my teachers would say that, um, that grief is the difference between what we want and what is true. And so in that sense, uh, being cut off in traffic is grief. <laughs> You know, um, why do we respond so vehemently to certain things because those things remind us we don't just get what we want. You know, we have losses, we have things that don't work. So I think that's a that's a, a good bottom line <laughs> on top yeah. of which the big griefs go. Yeah, let's come back to that after the break. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And there's also a link to my novel, An Ocean Between Them, which takes on the subject actually of cancer and, and healing and kindness. Um, there's also a link to an online therapy platform that I've researched pretty carefully and I, I'm um, happy to support called Better Help. There's a link to that. And then to find Claire Willis and her book, You can go to to openingtogrief.com. Be back soon.
0: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today.
1: This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month.
0: Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief.
1: Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Claire Willis. The author of the new book, *Opening to Grief*, and Claire. In reading your book, I was aware of a paradox I've thought of before, but it became very, very vivid as I was reading, which is that you're very careful, and I appreciate this so much, to to uh, emphasize that it is not about um, getting over grief or making it not hurt or um, you know, somehow taking grief away, uh, it's about practices that can help one actually be with whatever's going on. But ironically, that does ease grief in ways that I'm familiar with. And that's, that's paradoxical uh, <laughs> to me. And yeah. I wonder what you think about that, that kind of two-pointed um, reality there. Well, one of the things that I often say to
2: people is, whatever we resist will persist. And it may go under for a while, but it won't go away. And it might come out sideways. But it comes back to the idea that uh, grief is an expression of our loving. And why would we wanna suppress our loving? Mm -hmm. There's a great poem at the end of the book And um, I'd love to just read half of it.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Because
2: it's to this point. It's called The Cure by Albert Huffstickler. And it goes like this We think we get over things, we don't get over things, or say we get over the measles, but not a broken heart. We need to make that distinction. The things that become part of our experience never become less of our experience. How can I say it? The way to get over a life is to die. Short of that, you move with it. Let the pain be pain, not in the hope that it will vanish, but in the faith that it will fit in. Find its place in the shape of things and be then not any less pain, but true to form because anything natural has an inherent shape and will flow towards it. And a life is as natural as a leaf. That's what we're looking for. Not the end of a thing, but the shape of it. Wisdom is seeing the shape of your life without obliterating getting over a single instant of it. So I actually ended up reading that whole poem because I didn't want to Do the poem a disservice by stopping in midway. But I love that line about to get over it. it, A life is to die. And the question is how.
1: That stood out to me as well when I read it. Yeah. How can Um, we let sorrow
2: soften and open our hearts into a deeper loving of ourselves and others so that we're better able to join with others who are suffering? and be of service and presence to them so it's is hard i think part of what i was hoping the book would offer in each chapter in the first section that it would be doorways to opening to grief doorways that would help people hold grief so that they could feel this sort of deepening kindness towards themselves this sort of deepening love and appreciate that that grief and grief is an expression of, of love.
1: You know, just this last week, uh, was the 25th anniversary of my first wife's death. Mm -hmm. And I feel called upon to read this really short thing. I put up on Facebook with a picture of her, because it speaks to what you're talking about. It's about a paragraph. Uh, here's, here's what I said. Turning points are about more than a moment. For 10 years before my first wife died, we explored together what it might mean when she left this earth. I couldn't have known that although I couldn't be prepared, I was preparing all along. And then on this day, 25 years ago, she died. And I felt her joy as she left behind the body that could not sustain her anymore. And that euphoric experience at the moment of her death sustained me through all the grief to come. I did not mind the grief. I was grateful to have loved and been loved that much. And this became the start of a new life, the promise Stephen Levine made years earlier, that I would reincarnate after her death anyway. So lay it all on the line, save nothing for later. I've tried to live that way ever since.
2: That's beautiful. That's, that's really beautiful
1: i'm I'm quite compelled by this sense that you were just talking about of um, losses becoming the fabric of your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be such an amputation to mm-hmm. remove that. <laughs> You know, I can't yes. imagine wanting to remove that experience of, well, I, of being with her, at, including her death. It, I just can't even picture it. But I can imagine not wanting to feel
2: the searing pain of the loss. And that's different. And I think sure. part of what I encourage people to do through the book is to titrate that searing pain. And I make a promise that over time it will be less frequent, less intense, and it will endure for a shorter period of time. But there's no external timelines and that that searing pain from the very beginning eventually moves to a dull ache. So when someone we love first dies, our whole house is just the color of grief, The walls, the ceiling, the rug, the furniture, everything is gray. There's no color. And over time, what happens is color starts to come in, but there's always a gray chair that's going to be in the room for you to visit. And it's a little bit like breaking a bone. At first, it's searing pain. Maybe you have surgery, maybe you have PT. And on rainy days, it aches. Hmm. So
1: it These things never go away, but they take a different place in our life. And that's an interesting metaphor. I have a daughter who broke her arm four times. Very fortunately, she was only with her parents once. So we did not get hauled off. (laughs) It was things like sports accidents and stuff. But the um, orthopedist. Uh, told us something interesting that once the the bone has completely healed the place where the break where the break was hmm. becomes the strongest place in the bone it will not once it's completely healed which takes i think a few years maybe um it will not break in that place again yeah that's it would phrase. tend to yeah it was strong in the broken places Strong in the broken places, and um, yes, it might ache in the in the cold and all of that kind of thing, but uh, it won't be weak. <laughs> you you know, know, I love that as a metaphor.
2: <laughs> well, you, you know, Cheryl, that reminds me of something. This isn't in the book, but um, there's a, a Japanese practice called kintsugi, and that is that when a bowl breaks, uh, what often happens is that they repair it with a gold leaf so that in the cracks where it's been broken, the gold is as beautiful as the bowl itself or even more beautiful. But it's to the same point of being strong and beautiful in the broken places. As Leonard Cohen says, the crack is where the light gets in.
1: And that's for many grievers. I mean, I guess I had already kind of embraced that perspective by the time Joanne died um, through other losses you know lots of things happened in those ten, 10 years and we were actively investigating death and all that but many people haven't when they're when they're clobbered by a big loss done all that in advance yeah. and it's unimaginable to them that 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 they might see it that way at some point that's um, that's right. But in fact, and and it's can be very unwelcome to express such a thing to a new griever. I don't recommend it uh, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. um, unless they're wanting to hear it. But um, despite that, it is really true, isn't it? Yeah. We it's humans, really if we dive into
2: our pain. Well, we,
1: we well look what you've something. created
2: from, I don't know whether this program comes out of the loss of Joanne, but. You certainly oh, a hundred
1: percent. Well, here it is. So here, yeah. The there's light. no, and your books as well. I'm assuming you know yeah. come out of your experiences. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, there, I can't picture that I would have been drawn to this line of work without that experience. I was right. a therapist. I was training to be a therapist. You know, when I was with her, but to work with death, bereavement, illness, that came directly out of. That experience, you know,
2: the word passion has as the derivation, derivation. Sorry, the derivation of the word passion is suffering, and often what we're passionate about is things that we've suffered, and we get passionate about them because we don't want to see other people suffer in the way we do, and I think if you look at activists, often they're acting from a suffering that they know from the inside out. Mm -hmm. And I think of what you just said as your passion for this comes from the suffering you experienced in losing your loved one, Joanne. And so look what you're doing. You're passionate about this work, you know, but you know the suffering inside and out.
1: Well, and, and I've, I've learned over time with many, many people that that's pretty, um, almost dependable highly likely anyway that that if you allow for grief if you make room for grief if you don't just try to run away from it in whatever manner that um eventually you have an impulse to give Mm
2: -hmm.
1: an impulse towards generosity and an impulse towards helping other people
2: that's so true
1: I, I write. We
2: write about that in the chapter on um, joining together, about cre- creating a community in a bereavement group. That it's a way. Would you to like find. to
1: sh- share a little bit of that before we go uh, to our next break? Uh, sure. Um,
2: do you have a specific passage you want me to read, um, or should I just? There's something
1: that starts. Uh, we all need other people. Yeah, never that's more... the
2: first first paragraph. Yeah. Um, we all need other people never more than when we're overwhelmed by grief. We need one another to stay sane, to feel that we belong, to take a break, to fix a leaking toilet, to watch a movie together, to talk about the unspeakable events that just happened, to sing, to cry, and to laugh out loud. We need a check-in with a friend, a walk, tea, a kindness, the presence of another human being who listens and reminds us that everything changes and that someday we'll feel more ease. You know, it, it's interesting. This paragraph is interesting because I think that is about as true today for everybody in the country as it is for anybody <laughs> who's lost somebody because we've all lost so much. And these little connections
1: mean so much now. And and our... Um challenging to i feel i have an advantage because i've i've um connected intimately with people uh in these shows for the last seven years um which there isn't even i'm not even seeing your face right (laughs) or just voice to voice Uh, i already do did a little online work before this i don't um I don't I I feel a sense of connection in ways other than being in the room with mm-hmm. someone. Yeah. But for many people they're really having hard time connecting, feeling connected within what's available. And um I don't know what to do with that or say about it, but I know a lot of people are struggling with it. Just just how to um <clears throat> how to have the sense that they are not alone when they are physically alone uh that's
2: right and i'm not quite sure what to say to that except um i don't know around here people are gathering outside you know a lot of people are walking together at at distances but zooming is or electronic communication just isn't the same, and it's all we have, and it's better than nothing. Uh,
1: and that, it's one thing that does come to my mind that has worked quite well for me personally. Um, a child I helped to raise was living in New York when this started. She's since moved home, but <laughs> she um, we made a dinner date, and then we went and bought the same ingredients, and I gave oh. her a cooking lesson. And then we ate the same meal together. What and, a sweet um, idea! The more senses you add, it seems, the more it feels truly connective. Um, you know, if you can see the person, hear the person, and share something of the other senses. <laughs> <laughs> that's you
2: know, that's wonderful. I, I've had people um, for memorial services bring together recipes. That were favorite recipes, family bringing recipes that were favorite recipes of the person who died, which is along the same lines. Along the same lines.
1: Yeah, because we're activating all of those um, other aspects of uh, the sensate experience. You know, there's a section of your book on uh, nature, and I think that's the same type of idea that connecting to nature. Uh, invites us into a broader experience, a deeper experience, because it's sensate. Yes. So I'll leave it there for now, and we'll talk some more when we get back from the break. And listeners, you can go to my website, weatheringgrief.com. You can go to the Good Grief post page for all the links I already mentioned. And to find Claire Willis, you can go to openingtogrief.com. Back after the break.
0: a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Over 20 million people in America struggle with substance use. This impacts both the people who are using and loved ones who are trying to help. Still, there is hope. Tune in to the Beyond Addiction Show with host Josh King. You'll hear from experts and get the real information you need to understand and assist in change. Change can be hard. It doesn't have to be confusing. Tune in every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness.
1: I'm here with Claire Willis, and we've been talking about her book, Opening to Grief. And during the break, Claire, we were just talking about, you know, of course, your book is full of different practices, meditation, compassion, kindness to self. Um, but you were, you were uh, especially talking about the powerful um, possibilities of interacting with nature Let's let's go into that on air a bit. Could you say um, how you look at that and what you think uh, makes it so powerful? Well, I think one of the things that <clears throat> I noticed was during the pan, not
2: was, I shouldn't talk in the past tense, is during the pandemic that being outside in the natural world has been um, a real primary source of solace. And when we were writing the book, um, we began to do some research about this and why why people seem to have healing experiences or de-stressing experiences when they're in the natural world. And there's a a renowned um, evolutionary biologist named E.O. Wilson who writes about uh, something called biophilia, which is basically that we have an affinity towards other life forms as humans. We just it's a natural affinity. It's almost like in our DNA. And the, the when we go from, most of us are probably at the computer a lot, we're inside, um, we have indoor jobs. When we go from our electronic world outside, the, the, our eyes move from having to focus on a screen or on the keyboard to being able to relax in in the outside world the, there are two psychologists named rachel and stephen kaplan who've talked a lot about the benefits of, of restorative environments and let me just read you a little bit about what um, i we write in the book about this when we experience loss when we are grieving it is more important than ever to find ways back to the garden to spend time in the healing power of nature Psychologists Rachel and Stephen Kaplan's research, research and write about the benefits of restorative environments, which are outdoor places that are accessible, quiet, and relatively small, such as our yard or a pocket park in a city. And if there's no safe outdoor space where you live, and you're confined indoors, even in a hospital bed, you can rest in nature just looking out a window to a patch of sky or gazing at a plant indoors. When we spend time in restorative places, it becomes effortless to watch leaves floating down from trees, to notice a reflection of the sky in a puddle or to hear a bird call. These environments draw us in without asking us to focus on anything special. There's nothing to do. So when we return to focused cognitive tasks like writing a report or solving a problem, we feel refreshed, and I love that. And I think the other thing about the natural world is that we can see the cycles of grief and loss and reju- re- re- um, rejuvenation. So we have the seasons. At least we have the seasons here in in um, New England.
1: Um, we have seasons here. They're just subtle. They're, they're more. They're, they're more. They're less dramatic. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> but you know, right now, these gorgeous leaves are falling everywhere, mm. and there's a quilt of color on the ground. And then it'll come into a more stark gray time, and then spring comes. And isn't this really the, the trajectory of grief? You know, to loss, to bearing. the the, the starkness to rejuvenation and to flourishing in the summer.
1: I'm so with you. I'm, I'm laughing because I have, um, I never ever thought I would get a, get a tattoo, but (laughs) 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 life surprises one. I have a tattoo that, that covers the entire, uh, from my knee to my ankle down into my foot a little bit. It's a tree with all the four seasons on it. Oh, Uh, so I'm I'm absolutely with you. That's that's a very primary um, grief image for me, personally. Yeah. Uh, Because of that sense of of um, winter, winter can't possibly last forever. Spring always comes. (laughs) Well, it reminds (laughs) us that that everything we
2: feel. Every experience we have, whether it's joyful or sorrowful, is temporary. Everything is impermanent. Everything. So seeing the universality of that Mm -hmm. can sometimes be a comfort. And our suffering is exacerbated when we try to hold on to what was. So I think part of the the uh, struggle, the journey with the COVID here, is how do we move with what's happening? and adapt to it? How do we integrate it into our lives without constantly resisting it? Grieving what was, but finding, you know, as Fred Rogers used to say, the helpers. How do we find and and do the random acts of kindness, the things that we can do to counter the sorrow and the losses?
1: I had a practice for quite a few years, which I still do, but lightly, not, not, Uh, not as diligently, Uh, however, it's more important right now, I feel. Uh, I would read through a newspaper and ignore all of the negative articles and look for something Mm -hmm. where someone had had a terrible experience, but something had come out of it that was beautiful. Uh, (laughs) And they were there, but they were not on the front page. Mm -hmm. Um, But they were there, and that is so... um, so amazing to see, even though, of course, news is not geared that way. It's entirely geared to problems. Right. Um, but still, there w- there was an inspirational um, article here or there, even, even in that context, because that's such a big part of being human, isn't it?
2: Well, you know, and also those positive stories, and I think one of the reasons we included this chapter in the book called Um, being grateful, which probably to some people who have recently um, endured a loss of a loved one, that sounds sort of Pollyannish and unrealistic. But one of the things just to remember is that noticing these good things, noticing what you might be able to feel gratitude for, strengthens our ability to hold our grief. So that alone is a reason to try to, to pay attention to what's right alongside what's wrong, not at the expense of what's wrong, for sure, because that's really important to attend to tend, and befriend, but to, to to notice alongside what's right so we can hold what's wrong with a little bit
1: more ease. And I find, because I talk with grievers so much who are struggling with grief, no doubt about it, but if I dig um they are not only experience it's not like a dull depression they are not only experiencing terrible strong feelings there's other stuff in there too uh you know if if we look for it in ourselves um including you know some sense of preciousness of life yeah that's right um, so you you have a a chapter in your book um called welcoming the life that's yours which uh i think we're i think we're you know headed in that direction of we we can't predict when but at some point um things become meaningful instead of only painful and as with you and i that often leads in a very unexpected direction Right. Um, I wonder if you'd share some from that chapter, from the last chapter of your book. Um,
2: you know what I would like to do, um, mm. and
1: part of the,
2: uh, what I would love to do is just to share a paragraph from the launch we're going to do next week, which Absolutely. has been extrapolated from the last chapter.
1: Absolutely, sounds
2: perfect. So we chose this title. Well, let, let me let me start by reading the chapter. Chapter title of the last chapter is called Welcoming the Life That's Yours, and it begins with this personal reflection from a woman named Beth, describing a moment about a year after death of her beloved partner, Chris, to cancer. It was a surprising sensation after the first searing year Chris was gone. I was staying at a friend's house in Provincetown and biking late at night down a winding hill at the west end of town. Rounding a corner where there's almost no light, there was the familiar exhilaration of speed and warm June air. Nothing but wind, sky, and trees around me. Then a a thought slipped in. Be careful, you want to live. Live? Wanting to live? What a concept. Was this a slight crack in the pain? I let the moment wash over me, and with the breeze and the moonlight, I was still miserable without her, my girlfriend gone far too soon at age 46 of cancer. But flashes of light were starting to break up the unbearable darkness. So then this is uh, an, an excerpt from the book. We don't get to choose what happens to us. Experiences arise. We don't always get what we like or you wouldn't be drawn to the book. For most of us, there's no avoiding grief. Terrible things happen. And yet, even after a profound loss, perhaps you can imagine a moment when grief lifts just enough so that you sense something changing. You see that some old habits and behaviors don't sustain you anymore and will not support the well being of our children and future generations. In this clear awareness, you recognize that now you have a chance to make different more life-affirming choices. You don't have to succumb to despair. When we say welcoming the life that's yours, we mean something like opening to, being with, meeting, accepting that, yes, this happened. Instead of pushing what's happened away, we mean making room for or including all of it. What have you learned from your suffering and pain what do you have to share and how will you spend your precious life this moment these 24 hours
1: that's so so hard to inhabit 24/7 <laughs> and so uh, i know that i'm happiest when i live in that place where um, there's an awareness of what has been lost, what's been gained, what's been learned, uh, and how I wanna be living right now.
2: But nothing's inhabitable for 24 hours
1: a day, right? Well, that's true too, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Let's go easier. <laughs> it was pretty close at the, uh, this is the weird irony, at the end of my wife's life, um, there was a sort of constant presence because every minute was the last minute, right? Oh, the
2: intensity <laughs> of that! Uh, yeah.
1: About a, a about a month. i I've been remarried for a couple of decades, and about a month into that relationship, maybe a few months, uh, my then girlfriend, now wife, said, um, "You know, there's no emergency." <laughs> We're Good. not in an emergency. <laughs> I don't think I was anxious. I think I was just hyper present uh, in a way that was a little unrelaxing for her, I think.
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, so it's, That's all, it's
1: all a delicate balance, isn't
2: it, it Claire? Is. <laughs> it really is. And I, I think sometimes the very end of life, those last moments can take on an, a magnitude It's unfathomable and if they don't go well, often people will disqualify the weeks and months prior. There's a way those those ending moments just get amplified so much.
1: No matter what they are, for me, you know, I talked about the euphoria of that moment. It's because it was a very good ending. Yeah. And that got amplified as well. That's a big impact on my experience of, of grief and, my experience right now. Yeah. So uh, will there be a link to to book events and such on website? It's on my website. website? There's Opening a, to you know, grief.com? Dot, dot
2: yes, there's an event page. And
1: thank you so much for being here. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for having me.
2: I enjoyed it as well.
1: <laughs> Next week, I'll have Autumn Toelle Jackson to talk about how the loss of her husband, a dear cousin, and a child led her to write the book, boldly into the darkness. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief.